I'll be reading in Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 to 20. Matthew 5, verse 17. Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. Whosoever therefore shall break one of these least commandments and shall teach men so, he shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whosoever shall do and teach them, the same shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say unto you that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, ye shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. You may be seated. It was the summer of 2012. I had just been ordained, and that summer I was also um, assistant superintendent of our summer Bible school here. And in the course of my responsibilities, I would travel from class to class, of the children's classes, taking attendance, taking their offering, and so forth. And I stepped into class, I think it was taught by Glenn Miller, I'm not sure what it was, maybe fifth grade or something like that. They were having a Bible quiz. I think they were playing Bible baseball. And Glenn had just asked them a question, and uh, no one knew the answer. And so they asked me what the answer is. I said, well, I don't know either. I, and I don't recall hearing about that. And one of the children piped up, well, you should know. You're a preacher. So here I was, ordained all of two weeks, fresh off of preaching my very first sermon off this pulpit, and already I was supposed to have all the answers. Well, I still don't feel like I have all the answers. Sometimes, you've heard me say before, when I read a passage of Scripture, I feel like I have more questions than answers. And I felt that way somewhat this week as well. And as I was looking at this passage of Scripture, I started jotting down some of my questions. And I'm going to use those questions for an outline this morning. So we're going to look at a number of questions pertaining to the law. The title of the message, The Law of the Kingdom. And we're looking here at the Sermon on the Mount. We're looking at the kingdom of heaven, which Jesus, John the Baptist, has introduced. And Jesus is building upon that. And the, um, the Sermon on the Mount is very much presenting aspects of the kingdom of heaven. And so this morning we'd like to look at the law of the kingdom. But Jesus is not only introducing the law of the kingdom, he is also referring to the law. What law? That is the first question I'd like to look at. What is the law? Verse 17, think not that I am come to destroy the law. What is the law? Well, I find it interesting that this question about the law apparently was somewhat perplexing even to the early Christians. Because the, the, uh, the Apostle Paul and his epistles in numerous of his epistles, he very much built on this question about the law and how the law compares to the Christian life today. So, um, yes, he referred to this repeatedly, and it is profitable for us that those discussions were recorded, and I will be referring to uh, some of those references uh, throughout the message this morning. What is the law? Many times, one word can mean several different things. You might hear a man say, I love my wife. 
The next day, hopefully you're not too confused if you hear him say, I love chocolate chip cookies. He used the same word, but obviously with two separate meanings. So one word can, it doesn't always mean the same thing. And I believe that in the Bible, the word law can also pertain to several different things. For example, in New Testament times, the people in this geographic area were living under Roman law. And Jesus made reference to Roman law even here in the Sermon on the Mount. However, the New Testament is not always referring to the Roman law when it uses the word law. Nor is it necessarily referring to other political laws, such as the law of the Medes and Persians, which they had been familiar with from from reading the scriptures. So what might the term the law be referring to? I'd like to present several different possibilities. First of all, there is the eternal law of God. The eternal law of God. This is a law that was set in place at the beginning of time or perhaps even before the beginning of time, as we know it. Romans 1, verses 19 and 20, again, one of the epistles of Paul, says, because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, in the people of this world, for God hath showed it unto them, for the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. This is referring to eternal laws of God that were set in place since the creation, things that are obvious to men. The eternal law of God was set in place at the beginning. The eternal law of God cannot be destroyed. There's nothing you can do to change the laws of God. No law made by man is going to override the laws of God. They cannot be destroyed, nor can they be changed. They are eternal. They are established. Several verses, and I would have liked to project these verses here. I'm sorry I don't have them uh, part of the uh, presentation here. 1 Peter 1 verse 25 says, But the word of the Lord endureth forever. If God said it, there's nothing that's going to change it. A number of years ago, there was a saying floating around, Uh, You may have heard it more recently, too. I don't know. But uh, the saying went, God said it, I believe it, and that settles it. Well, that might sound good, but it's just as true if you take the middle phrase out. It makes no difference if I believe it or not. God said it, and that settles it. The word of God cannot be changed based on what man says. The word of the Lord endureth forever. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 8 says, the grass withereth, the flower fadeth, but the word of our God shall stand forever. And Psalm 1989, forever, O Lord, thy word is established or is settled in heaven. So there's the eternal law of God that cannot be destroyed. It cannot be changed. Things like the righteousness of God, the sinfulness of man, these are principles Sin cannot stand in the presence of a holy God. The law of sowing and reaping, these are things that were established. So sometimes when the Bible refers to law, it may be referring to the eternal law of God. Then there's also the law of Moses. 
Now, I want to clarify that when I say the law of Moses, I am not implying that the law of Moses was his own concoction, something that he came up with his own or that it was not from God. Perhaps we could say it was the law given through Moses or the law of God given through Moses. And in many cases, or perhaps every case, the law of Moses made specific application to the more general and overriding law of God. For example, the law of God specified that when there is sin, there is a penalty. In Romans 6, the wages of sin is death. There is sin, there is a penalty. Well, the law of Moses went into a lot more detail in the Old Testament, specifying the details for different penalties and also the atonement that could be made. Many um, details for various types of sacrifices. The law of God, the overriding eternal law of God, specified the need for moral purity and marital fidelity, where the law of Moses specified many details about different types of relationships, what is permitted, what is not permitted, and the consequences of disobedience. So you see how that the law of Moses made application, specific application, to the general law of God. Now, in New Testament times, the law of Moses was also referred to as the Torah, and people had gone through the law and made an effort to pick out, went through the writings of Moses, made an effort to pick out each individual law that was specified in there, and they came up with a list of 613 specific laws. And that list is still available. It's kind of interesting to just browse through. You can find that list of laws available. Laws that are specified, laws pertaining to how we relate to God, laws that pertain how we relate to the brotherhood, how we relate to strangers, how we relate to the poor, to Gentiles, to the unclean. There's dietary laws. There's laws about sacrifices. There's laws about circumcision. There's laws about dress. All these different laws are part of the Torah and part of what was known as the law of Moses. So there is the law of God, there is the law of Moses, and then there are also political and local laws. And I referred to those earlier, like the Roman laws. And the New Testament also makes reference to this type of law. Romans chapter 13 teaches that we need to be obedient to the laws established by the powers that be. Let every soul be subject to the higher powers. First, or Peter in his first epistle. Fear God, honor the king, again, teaching subject to these laws. And Jesus himself, in numerous occasions, um, emphasized the importance of obeying the political laws. For example, render unto Caesar the things that be Caesar's, and unto God the things which be God's. So these are all examples of obeying the law in this sense of the word, the political sense. So now that brings us to the question, going back to Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says, think not that I'm come to destroy the law. What is he referring to in this case? I don't necessarily think he is referring specifically to the eternal law of God, although that 
could apply because obviously he did not come to destroy the law of God and he obviously did fulfill the principles therein. And I don't think in this setting that he was referring specifically to the political laws of men, although that may apply as well because he did not come to bring rebellion or to bring chaos, but to bring order and submission. He taught subjection to the laws of men, both by word and by example. But I think what Jesus was referring to here specifically in this verse was the law of Moses. And there are several reasons why I think that. Many times throughout the New Testament, when the New Testament refers to the law, it is referring to the law given by Moses. And I think the context here implies that. In this verse, it mentions both the law and the prophets. And the term the law and the prophets was often used to refer to the Old Testament, referring to the law and then the prophetic teachings of of the different prophets. So I think in this setting, what Jesus was referring to specifically was the scripture that they had available at that time which we know as the Old Testament, which contained the law of Moses, it contained the uh, prophets, and also books of poetry and so forth. So now, Jesus says, I am not come to destroy the law. Let's move on to the next question. What is the purpose of the law? Or what is the purpose of the law of Moses? And I'm sure we could list a number of different things, but I'd like to narrow it down to three points here. The purpose of the law, first of all, was to reveal something about God. It was to reveal who God is and specifically to reveal his holiness. Paul said in Romans chapter 7, wherefore the law is holy and the commandment holy and just, and good. So the law was given to reveal God's holiness. That's kind of the the whole basis on which this law was given, the holiness of God. But then the purpose of the law was to move beyond that as well, not only to reveal God's holiness, but also to reveal man's sinfulness. There's a vast difference. Romans chapter 3, verse 20. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. And he goes on in chapter 7, verse 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? God forbid. No, the law does not make sin. It just simply reveals sin. Nay, I had not known sin but by the law. For I had not known lust except the law had said Thou shalt not covet. So what Paul is saying here, referring back to the law, is that the purpose of the law was so that we would realize who God is, but also so that we would realize who we are. And when we see the law, we recognize that we're not measuring up. We do not meet the the requirements of the law. And we cannot measure up. We are sinful creature, no matter how hard we try. The law simply reveals our weakness and who we are. Now, if I would stop there, that could be depressing. If the law was simply designed to make us feel like scum, what good does it do? 
But there's more than that. The law revealed who God is. It revealed who we are. But it also reveals our need of a Savior to bring us back to God. And Paul says in Galatians chapter 3, Wherefore the law was our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. So the law was actually given, yes, to reveal our dire condition, but also to present hope, to throw something out, to look forward to, to bring us to Christ, to point ahead to something that is to come. And that's why Jesus said, I'm not coming to destroy the law. The law brings hope. And I'm coming to fulfill that hope, to bring you that hope. So the law points us, as a schoolmaster, points us to Christ, to reveal our need of a Savior. Not only does it show us our need of salvation, but it also shows the source of salvation. Throughout the Old Testament law, all those conditions about the sacrifice, the atonement, all points ahead to Christ and to the source our salvation. So in reality, the law is really a beautiful thing. Something that, yes, can seem overwhelming, but something that had a purpose throughout history and the lives of men. Now Jesus says, I don't want you to think that I'm come to destroy the law. I am not come to destroy but to fulfill. So that brings us to another question. What is the fulfillment of the law? And I'd like to uh, kind of swing off on a different, uh, different point here and, and then bring it back around here. I'd like to think a little bit about the world population today is considered to be something over 7.7 billion people. Have you ever wondered how many people were, how many people ever lived throughout the history of the world from the beginning of time? Well, that's a somewhat difficult question to put a figure to, but people have tried, and I've read a number of sources. Uh, most of them are exceed 100 billion people, but most of them also, I would say, are not from a biblical perspective and uh, go back over tens of thousands of years. But uh, one source I looked at uh, goes back to just several thousand years before Christ and estimated that from that time until today, their estimate, which they considered to be a very conservative estimate, is that 56 billion people have lived from the beginning of time until now, including those that are living today. Now, of those 56 billion people, I'm just going to use that figure, assuming that it might be somewhere close. How many of those people can you name that are not alive today? Of those 56 billion people? Relatively few. If you're a good historian, you might be able to come up with the names of several hundred people that lived. Probably wouldn't get much beyond that. Of those 56 billion people, most of them are forgotten. Let's make it a little more personal. Every one of you here 
has four grandparents. Hopefully you know their names. But if we go back just one generation before that, you had eight great-grandparents. I'm wondering, how many of you here think that you could name all eight of your great-grandparents? Is there anyone? Okay. Less than a dozen, it looks like. Fewer than a dozen. I won't ask you to do it. Um, Many of you, your lives have overlapped with at least a few of your great-grandparents. And yet most of you probably could not name all of your eight great-grandparents. That's how soon people are forgotten. The point I want to emphasize here, of this assumed number of 56 billion people, most of whom have been forgotten, there is one man that stands out above all others. This man impacted not only the course of human history, but he has impacted individual lives as well, including the lives of each one of you, every person that is here this morning. It's because of that man that you are here. So he even impacted your schedule today. And of course, I'm referring to Jesus Christ of Nazareth. No one else in the course of human history has had such an impact on human, on humanity, on humankind. And his impact of humanity was based primarily on what he did in a short period of 36 months. That's less time than it takes for you to graduate from high school. And yet he impacted the course of human history. He came to fulfill the law. What is the fulfillment of the law? In short, it's the coming of Jesus Christ. So you see, what is the law? I mentioned that the law points to our need for a Savior, for a Redeemer. Jesus Christ came as the fulfillment of that law. What is the fulfillment of the law? It is the coming of Christ. Jesus said, I am come to fulfill the law. And he came to fulfill the purpose of the law. Remember, I just said the purpose of the law was to point us to Christ. And the fulfillment of the law was the coming of Christ. So Christ came to fulfill the law. What is the fulfillment of the law? It's the coming of Christ. It's the life of Christ. In coming, Christ fulfilled the demands of the law. The first person ever to walk the earth who did so. No one else could fulfill the demands of the law. But Christ, in living it, in living on the earth, fulfilled the demands in every aspect. He fulfilled it in his birth, through the rites of his birth. He fulfilled it in his life. No other person was ever able to keep the whole law. Christ alone did. And he fulfilled the law also by his death. What is the fulfillment of the law? It's the coming of Christ, the life of Christ, 
and the death of Christ. He fulfilled the requirements of the law. You see, the law required blood. It required death. It required atonement for sin. And throughout the Old Testament, the law of Moses described all the sacrifices that need to be made. It described the responsibilities of the priests. But these sacrifices that the priests performed were merely a representation of that which is to come, was merely pointing forward to the great sacrifice. And Christ alone, in his death, met these requirements once and for all. Several verses to note. Galatians chapter 3, verse 19. Wherefore then serveth the law? It was added because of transgression till the seed should come to whom the promise was made. You see, the law was given to point to the seed. So Christ is the fulfillment of that law. He fulfilled the law. Romans chapter 7, verses 4 and 6, uh, uses the example of marriage, how that as a married person, you are bound to your husband or wife as long as that person lives. If that person dies, you are then free from that law of marriage. Paul goes on to say, Wherefore, my brethren, ye also are become dead to the law by the body of Christ, that ye should be married to another. It's the fulfillment of the law, the transition from one law to another law. That ye should be married to another, even to him who is raised from the dead, that we should bring forth fruit unto God. But now we are delivered from the law, that being dead wherein we were held, that we should serve in newness of spirit, not in the oldness of the letter. Christ, in fulfilling the law, brings a transition from one law to another. And we're going to get to that law shortly. Hebrews chapter 8, verses 8 and 13. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel. This was a prophecy from the Old Testament that's being quoted in Hebrews when God is saying there will be a new law with the house of Israel, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt. In that he saith a new covenant, he hath made the first old. So here again we see that Christ is the fulfillment of the law, the old covenant replaced with a new. That is why in the New Testament we find no more teachings about offering sacrifices, about killing animals. We find no teachings for other things such as the... Um, earthly priesthood, other than that of Jesus. We don't find teachings for many laws, circumcision, and so forth. <clears throat> Jesus came to introduce a new law, which I am referring to as the law of the kingdom. Now, as I said, as I emphasized before, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus was presenting the platform for this new kingdom, and he was presenting a new set of laws. Which brings us to the next question. What is the law of the kingdom? What is the law of the kingdom? Now, as we look at the Sermon on the Mount, 
I look at the first 16 verses as kind of an introduction to the sermon. In the Beatitudes, Jesus is just introducing a lot of different concepts, just kind of throwing them out. And as I mentioned earlier, a lot of these concepts are built upon later on in the sermon. And then we have 13, 14, 15, and 16, where he refers to the salt of the earth and the light of the world. Again, just giving ideas to the people of what they are supposed to be. And now I'm looking here at verses 17 to 20. He moved through the introduction, and now he is stating his thesis, the thesis for this sermon. And then beginning with 21, he continues to develop that sermon. And we see an interesting phrase in verse 18. For verily I say unto you, we see the same phrase in verse 20. I say unto you. That's the first two of 14 times that Jesus uses that phrase in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is presenting something new, and he is comparing the law of Moses to the law of the kingdom. So what is the law of the kingdom? Well, the law of the kingdom teaches us to respect the eternal laws of God. The eternal laws of God are still applicable to us today in the law of the kingdom. Again, I'll quote a number of verses from the New Testament. Hebrews 8, verse 10 says, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their mind and write them in their hearts, and I will be to them a God, and they shall be to me a people. So the law of the kingdom does not make the laws of God, the prior laws of God, obsolete necessarily. Although some of the laws of Moses are no longer, longer required. But the eternal laws of God are still to be in our minds and in our hearts. Acts chapter 15, verse 20. This was when some of the uh, apostles gathered together and they were dealing with this problem of um, what do we need to require of the Gentiles? These Gentiles are, are coming to the Lord. They're being filled with the Spirit. Uh, what do we need to require of them? Do they need to be circumcised? Uh, do they need to follow all of our rules? And they had some discussion on that. And basically their conclusion was that the law of Moses has been fulfilled, but there is still the eternal law of God, which is just as applicable now as it was before. And this was their conclusion, that we write unto them that they abstain from pollution of idols, from fornication, from things strangled, and from blood. You see, these were principles that were taught by God from the beginning, even before the law of Moses. The law of um, personal purity, moral purity, um, idol worship, and things like that. These were laws that still apply. Romans chapter 3, verses 28 and 31. Therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law, all the laws of Moses. Do we then make void the law through faith? God forbid. Yea, we establish the law. You see, every aspect of God's law has a point, is valid. And there, the eternal aspect of God's law still needs to be followed today. And then Jesus himself, in verse 18, 
says, For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law, till all be fulfilled. You see, God's law is not rendered invalid. Every little detail has a purpose. There's nothing in the law that is random, that was just kind of put in there for whatever. He refers here to every jot or every tittle. One jot or one tittle shall no wise pass from the law. Now, I've heard that described as the, the dot of an I and the cross of a T. Uh, I also um, read another uh, source that indicated that the jot was the, indicated the very smallest letter of the alphabet, and a tittle was a mark that distinguished one letter from another. For example, if you compare the letter O with the letter Q, they're exactly the same except a Q has that little slash mark at the bottom. I guess we could call that a tittle because it distinguishes that law or that letter from another letter. Jesus is saying not one jot or tittle shall pass from the law. The same mighty word that spoke heaven and earth into existence is the same word that spoke the Mosaic law into being and that spoke the kingdom laws into being. God's moral laws are as timeless today as forever. And then in verse 19, Jesus goes on to say, Whosoever therefore shall break one of these least commandments and shall teach men so, he shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whosoever shall do and teach them, the same shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And it appears like the Pharisees took the law of Moses and divided it into two categories, great laws and lesser laws, and indicating that if you broke one of the lesser laws, it's not really that big of a deal. But Jesus is emphasizing here that every commandment of God is significant. So what is the kingdom law? It's respect for the eternal laws of God, but it is also to recognize that we are called to a higher law. I'd like to read verse 20. And as I read this verse, I'd like you to picture the expressions on the faces of the people that Jesus was speaking to. What do you think was going through their minds? When Jesus said to them, For I say unto you that except your righteousness exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, ye shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. What do you think went through their minds? I'm not sure. Perhaps some of them knowingly nodded their heads and thought, yeah, you hit that nail on the head because those Pharisees, they, they might act righteous, but I know they're not. And uh, everything they do is just a sham. It wouldn't take much to exceed their righteousness. But I'm guessing their thoughts were a little different than that. When Jesus said, accept your righteousness, exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, I can imagine that for some of them, their jaws dropped open. And it was, say what? Well, who can be saved? I mean, if all their regulations are not enough, what is it going to take? It must be an impossibility. 
I can imagine this statement came as a shock to them. Exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees? This verse, I think, is the verse on which the rest of the Sermon on the Mount is built. Because Jesus goes on to say, You have heard this, but this is what I say unto you. You have heard that it was said by them of old time, but this is what I say unto you. This is what was required in the old law. This is the standard of the kingdom law. And this standard is much higher than anything that was required of you before. The kingdom law is to recognize that we are called to a higher law. Romans 8 Chapter 2 says, For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. And I pointed this out before. You recognize that there are two laws. We're not just simply free from the law of sin and death, but there is the law of the Spirit of life. And it is the law of the Spirit of life that made us free from the other law. And when Jesus was introducing here the law of the kingdom, the principles of the kingdom, He was not destroying the law. Instead, this law superseded the previous law. Now, while there are certain things in the Mosaic law that Jesus is no longer requiring of us and the apostles are no longer in the epistles are no longer requiring of us, we are not free from the law of God. You see, when you are held to a higher law, you are no longer bound by the lesser law. For example, suppose a parent establishes some rules for his teenagers. And maybe two of the rules that he establishes, maybe he says, I'm going to limit your time on social media to one hour per day. And you need to be in bed by 12 o'clock. So that is the law to which that teenager is subject. But suppose that teenager goes off to a new setting, some training camp or boot camp or something, and suddenly there are no cell phones, period. And you must be in bed by 10 o'clock every evening. Now, does the law, is that, is that uh, teenager still bound by the law of his parents? No, if he's in bed by 10 o'clock, the rule to be in bed by 12 o'clock means nothing. You see, there's a higher law, so therefore he is no longer bound by the previous law. Or another example. A parent may give a young child certain restrictions. A young child that has some of his own spending money, a parent may teach that child, do not spend all of your money on candy. Do not spend all of your money on sweets. Well, hopefully, as that child grows and matures, he gets to the point where, willingly, he doesn't even spend any of his money on buying candy. You see, as he matures, the restrictions he had no longer bind him because he holds himself to a much higher level. Galatians 3, again, I referred to this passage before. Wherefore, the law was our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after that faith has come, we are no longer under a schoolmaster. You see, we are moving beyond that. We're no longer living 
in the condition that says you may not spend all of your money on candy. We are living under a higher code of conduct. One more question. So why did Christ come? This was his statement, verse 17. Don't think that I'm come to destroy the law. I'm not come to destroy, but to fulfill. And I have several reasons here. Why did Christ come? First of all, he did not come as a revolutionary. Now, there were people in that time who were looking for someone to deliver them from the laws of the Romans, from the Roman empires. And there were revolutionaries of the day who tried to rise up against the established law. Jesus did not come as a revolutionary. The Old Testament and the law of Christ are not in collision with each other. They complement each other. They're in harmony with each other. And Jesus fulfilled that law and carries us on to a higher degree. So first of all, he did not come as a revolutionary. Secondly, he did come to fulfill, to complete, and to perfect the Old Testament. He came to fulfill, complete, and perfect the Old Testament. And this is kind of summarizing some of the things that I gave you before. Thirdly, he came to call us to a higher standard of living. The law of the kingdom is a law that exceeds the status quo. It's not a law that looks at what other people do to find out what I'm allowed to do. It's not a law that looks at what other people are getting away with to try to decide what I can get away with. The law of the kingdom is a law that holds us to a higher level of living. It exceeds the status quo. Beyond that which is considered acceptable. More than what everyone else is doing. This is carrying us to a new level. Far beyond. And again, this is the thesis of the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says, I say unto you. And... Fourthly, why did Christ come? He came to give power to live the life of the kingdom. Luke chapter 9, verse 1 says, He called unto them his disciples, and he gave them power. Acts 1.8 says, Ye shall receive power. After that, the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses throughout the whole world. This is the power that is available through Christ. And I'd like also to read Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25. It says, Wherefore he, referring to Jesus Christ, is able also to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him. The law could not save. The law simply revealed who we are. The law revealed to us our need for a Savior. But Jesus Christ has the power to save. He has the power to give us a new life. Now, verse 20 can be a pretty overwhelming verse. That except your righteousness exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you don't have a chance. That could be pretty discouraging. But Jesus says, I am come to give power. It should not be overwhelming. It should be exhilarating. Imagine... If you were involved in a track and field at school and you're doing a high jump and you know that the record 
is beyond your ability, and you think, well, there's no way I can break that record, but if you would be given extra strength that you could just soar over that barrier, higher than anyone in your school has ever jumped before, that would be exhilarating. You set a new record. Jesus come to help you set a new record. Jesus gives the power. That should be exhilarating, not simply overwhelming. I'd like us to look at these verses as a call to a higher standard of living, to a call that will be developed as we continue to move through this sermon on the mount, a call to the teachings of Christ, which he asked us to follow in our lives. May God give us the grace and the power to follow the laws of his kingdom.